Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Raphael Stoneman. Uh, Raphael is some sort of a filmmaker. I've watched a number of his uh, interviews that he's done with this, many of the people that I interview. Uh, definitely interested in spirituality, um, both kind of uh, as an observer and participant. And um, I understand I've heard references to you having been an actor a little bit, and uh, and I'll so. But I'm gonna let. Uh, do you call yourself Rafi sometimes as a nickname, or you go by Rafael? Uh, I used to go by Rafe. Rafe, okay. But uh, I've been using Rafael. Okay, the last so, so we'll we'll go for the full name. So I'm gonna let you just kind of introduce yourself, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. Um, there's a cat that just came in and is visiting me real quickly. It's, I always have one around <laughs> myself. <laughs> it's a wild cat that lives in the neighborhood. Oh, good. So she might hold her up her... for a second. She's here. Very nice. <laughs> My wife's gonna take her, okay. take her away because no she might problem. start clawing in. Sure. Me. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a story in the in the Vedas someplace where this disciple was uh, sitting in his his master had his head on on the disciple's lap, and he was sleeping. And and uh, the the master only accepted Brahmins as disciples. And a, an insect bored into the disciple's leg, but he didn't move because he didn't want to disturb the master. When the master woke up, he saw what happened, and he said, "You're not a Brahmin. You're a Kshatriya, because a, Br <laughs> a Brahmin wouldn't be able to stand that pain." So I'm sorry, I gotta let you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh... That seems to be what's going on a lot, a lot of a lot of distinctions and stuff. Mm. But um, yeah, I uh, let's see. I'll give you a brief little history. Um, around the age of thirteen, I was uh, having a lot of emotional kind of just. Man, it's normal for a teenager, but I, I was sitting by the train tracks a lot, wanting to throw myself in front of a train, and mm. kind of didn't didn't want to be here anymore, and. And then uh, my dad had suggested that I that I be an actor. He said, you know, you remind me of James Dean. He said, you should you should be an actor. And uh, I started getting very interested in acting and started reading a lot of acting books and watching a lot of films and reading plays and kind of taking on a um, a life kind of dream that I would become an actor and that that would be my identity. And um, I kind of stayed with that. And I uh, went to New York City when I was 18 to be an actor. And around that time, my, my older brother, who was just a year and a half older, and, and my best friend, uh, John, went to India. And they came back from India. And that had a, a strong effect on kind of where I was at at the time. And my brother basically said, you know, you have to be a human being first and an actor second. Kind of, kind of jolted me a bit because I, had, I had been thinking that being a, a great actor was the only thing important. But you know, it's now it's a pretty obvious statement. How how could you even be a good actor if you're not first like a real human being <laughs> that's had real experiences and come from that place? So that kind of uh, shifted my focus a bit from from this kind of self image of becoming an actor and ambition and, and started kind of a quest or an inquiry about what is life, what is the meaning, what is the real purpose. Um, 
the three of us did LSD in Central Park about probably a year or so after that. And um, that kind of destroyed my ability to perceive as an individual when that happened. You know, there, there was no longer like a, a sense of the mind stream about who I am. And there was just this vast kind of open uh, void where I was actually afraid, you know, that I was losing the function of being the form. And in that fear, there was kind of a resistance to what was happening because of still that that desire to to be an actor and to to be in the form and to have you know the the ability to even have you know even be able to smile at will. I couldn't do any of those things in that state, mm-hmm. and it was pretty intense. And and then I left New York City after that and became very focused on, you know, I guess what we would say, like the spiritual path, um, you know, pretty much exclusively without any any other interest to, you know, have any other identity or become anything in the world. So that kind of desire to be an actor got turned upside down. And uh, that led to, you know, a lot of reading and a lot of contemplating and just kind of trying to find out who I really am. And uh, my brother had gone to India again, this time to uh, stay with Papaji in Lucknow. And at the time, I couldn't go. I, I had, you know, young children, infants, and um, had no money, you know, no, no access really to, to be able to go. And um, a friend of mine did send me a book, a Ramana book at that time. So I was about 22 years old. And um, I was reading a lot of different books. I was reading a lot of different teachers. And um, eventually I got very focused on just Ramana and his teachings and uh, kind of put away everything else, like pictures of Yogananda and Babaji and all these other saintly beings that. Typically, you know, we we kind of look at look at their faces as the divine and try to get attuned with them. And uh, so I just narrowed it down to Ramana. And uh, around that time, I'd say I was about 25. The focus was to give up spirituality as it would look, and to give up being involved in even something like this, you know, like a, a direct talk about spirituality in an interview, to not, not be engaged in anything like that and just just work, just provide and just stay in self-inquiry. Just as every thought rises, just inquire whose thought it is and just stay in that. So I did a lot of manual labor and uh, eventually that led to learning how to trim trees and then I was self-employed trimming trees for about three, or three and a half, four years. And this inquiry was continuing. It was being interrupted by what would be like strong thoughts or desires or interests, creative interests that would come back, stimulate the mind to go outward again into an activity, an activity that had 
the premise of like a result or a, a sense of doer. Whereas the manual labor and the tree trimming was kind of like, it's an activity, obviously, you know, the body's in motion, it's doing things, but there wasn't any sense of like a spiritual identity that could go anywhere or an, or an actor or an artist or anything that's a strong kind of sense of oneself about who they are in the world and what their mission is, you know, like I used to have that before I focused on that, I had this sense of a mission. And uh, I think that's common to a lot of people that have these awakenings. You know, you, you wake up and you feel like you, you're it, you're the one, you're the divine. Now you got to tell everybody, and now you got to transform the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's typically kind of something that occurs in the beginning in the, in the initial stages still has a lot of immaturity to it, uh, but it's, you know, it's natural. It's, it doesn't hurt anyone really. But anyway, uh, I ended up joining the army at the age of 34 after rereading the Bhagavad Gita and take, <laughs> <laughs> taking it very literally. <laughs> so, um, I did, I joined the army and, and, uh, you know, they asked me, what do I want to put on the dog tags? And, uh, they didn't have self-realization as an option. You know, so I put Hinduism, huh. that I was a Hindu. So here I am, an, an American soldier in South Carolina, you know, on the first day of boot camp, and they make you put all of your personal possessions in front of you, and they weed through it and take the things, you know, that you're not allowed to keep. So I had the the King James Bible, and I had the Bhagavad Gita, and this uh Baptist drill sergeant picked up the Bhagavad Gita and was like, what the heck is this? He's like, you're not allowed to have this. He's like, the Bible you can you can have, you know. I said, well, <laughs> I said, I need them both, drill sergeant. Hmm. He's like, he checked my dog tags and he's like, Hindu. <laughs> he's like, well, you got to pick one. <laughs> Actually, and, uh, my Jewish friends who are into Eastern spirituality often call themselves Hindus. I was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, I, I should have said Hindu. Yeah, yeah you should have. <laughs> <laughs> then he really would have been confused. <laughs> but um, the other drill sergeant kind of pulled him aside and, and whispered to him that, you know, you can't really mess with somebody's religion, which mm-hmm. is this guy was, you know, just ready to throw the Bhagavad Gita in, into the circle where he was going to confiscate it but I said I, I just I, I read them both you know um, um, he let me keep them both and uh, I didn't have too much time to read in that nine weeks but I was keeping a little bit of a diary in the, you know not every day but on on the days that were a little like in the evenings when I had some time but um, that experience of the army was kind of about completely disappearing into something that you have no choice, you have no you know control over and you're just told what to do and it was a great kind of like uh, almost like going to a monastery you know where you have somebody instructing you on what to do and breaking you of, of whatever attitude you have to re- be rebellious or you know think that you're you're you know directing your own fate and nobody's going to tell you what to do or how to do it and so that was kind of a good uh, training training ground to just feel all of these things coming up but feeling like there's no 
point to expressing any of it, you know, verbally to the people there that they wouldn't understand and just stay and staying in inquiry, you know, staying in the investigation of how the mind rises, how it likes to start projecting a future, you know, how it dwells on the past and just keep observing the mind in that way. And so three and a half years I got out and that was 2006. And um, since then I've, I've been pretty lucky that I, when I first came out, you know, I was getting unemployment for two years while I was going to college for full-time. Did you go to Iraq or Afghanistan? No, I, I went to South Korea for oh, a year, which okay. was pretty... Pretty, pretty mild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, you know, go to combat or anything, which I'm pretty grateful for because I had some friends that did go, and, and uh, it was pretty hard on them to adjust, you know, right. to be, being in that combat and then coming back to like a normal routine right I'd say though I was talking about this the other day that you know we associate PTSD with the combat experience but it's any trauma sure and boot camp in a, in a way was trauma traumatic because they try to make it you know like a simulation right of that chaotic energy that you experience in in combat so they'd come in at two in the morning and start flipping beds so you were always on guard. You're always on edge, and you know. Even now, it's like I, I never like the feeling if I'm going to be late because they say in the army you got to be. If they tell you to be there at six thirty, you got to be there at six twenty. Mm. It's always ten minutes prior. <laughs> so I see that you know still showing up where it's like, you know, I'm going to be late, but I still have like fifteen minutes. It's like I have to get there early because of that kind of conditioning that was happening in the army, but. Yeah, I got out and, and um, <clears throat> a lot of stuff started to come up that maybe was, I thought was was gone internally, but looking back on it now, it was possibly just suppressed. Um, and then I finally, I finally got to go to India, which I'd been, I kind of was my last strong desire of wanting an experience, wanted something that I wanted really badly to do was go to Arunachala, go to Ramana Ashram. And finally, after getting out of the army, I got to do that. And I was only there in India a total of 10 days, and I was at the ashram probably six days. <clears throat> and I went up to the cave that Ramana stayed in, and that was a pretty kind of very profound silence was happening of just as I was staring at this picture of him that was in the cave, it was the young picture and all of these faces started morphing on his face like bald guys and women and big bearded men all different nationalities just one after the other and then it just kind of went blank and it just got really, really quiet where there was no longer any sense of like hearing one's one's own thought process. And I'd had some experiences like that before. You know, it's they come and they go, you know, intense kind of feelings of uh pure presence, I guess you could call it. But 
um, then the mind kind of kicks back in and you're, you're in what you would call your normal, maybe your, your everyday waking state. Um, a lot of times we want to go back to that. We want, we want to taste that, you know, but, um, mostly I've found that it's just being in the natural, just being natural without trying to get anywhere is kind of what's what's reminded you know to me is is all to do you know, it's the only thing to really embrace anymore um but so i came back from india started going to school and um started writing a lot of poetry and um was working on a documentary traveling around doing that and a lot of these these um these like tendencies, creative tendencies are coming back, but there's less of a there's less of like a vanity or an ambition. You know, when I was 18, there was a huge wanting to be recognized, wanting fame, and now it's more it's just like pure kind of expression. You know, there isn't a whole lot put on where it will go or what will happen or how to market it and I've I've never been good at that like the business side of things you know how to actually market anything or sell anything I'm not a salesman um, so um, just to kind of bring it bring it up to the current uh, about two years ago I, I met Natalia and we got married she came she's from Russia she came from Canada she was staying there and and we went through the immigration process and all that, which was actually wasn't that bad. We got a pretty nice interviewer. We got lucky there. And uh, she and I have been living here in Ohio, and I'm still going to school because I got some more benefits from the GI Bill. And I work two days a week with um, ex-cons that just came out of prison. And I take them out to do community service. And it's basically the same, the same uh, focus of self-inquiry. It's just a little bit less of a, a practice and more of just a natural recognition that inquiry is where we are when we're not making assumptions, we're not drawing conclusions, that when we're just here, we are in the inquiring space, the investigative space of just looking, seeing, being aware, being present, and usually it's something that will come up that kind of distracts us from that which we already are effortlessly and then we have to kind of run through this gamut of finding out what's going on and it's usually it's some kind of deep-seated desire playing out you know and it manifests and then you, you have to deal with it so, so uh, when you are that which you already are naturally, effortlessly, when you're not in a state of distraction, what are you? When you are that which you already are? Yeah, you just said, you know, that what one tends to get uh, drawn off by distractions or, yeah. or, or motivations or whatever and, and therefore kind of lose that natural state of being what you already are. And so my question is, when you, when you haven't lost that state, in your experience, um, when you're not in a state of distraction or, or off balance or anything, 
what is it that you know yourself to be? Awareness, mm -hmm. beingness. Yeah, that, that would be the best, um, the first two words to kind of convey what that is. Yeah. Uh, just awareness, because the attention is going to move around. We're going to put our attention on a particular thought. Typically, we're, we're going to repeat, you know, we're going to have a little ritual that we do, a routine. And so our attention is going to just constantly play out, you know, similar. You went for a bike ride this morning. Mm -hmm. I went and had a coffee and a cigarette in my truck. You know, this is a routine. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're healthier. <laughs> <laughs> so these things are going to play out. They may drop away. But basically, the the starting point of being aware, if you if we just start from there, we'll see when a strong identification occurs and makes us forget that we're just this awareness that's here that isn't really defining itself, you know, or trying to become anything. Mm -hmm. But then we'll see where we're, you know, we're moved into an identification that is strong and then we might snap out of it and be like oh, what am I doing that's there's no real joy in that that's all that's all kind of the I guess what we call ego the, the whole sense of egoism of becoming and of achieving and you know wanting some type of result so then that's when you know, you, you would just ask yourself what you're doing and, and who's doing it. And I think the longer you've been in that natural habit, the easier it is to not get pulled deeply into that identification. For me, the, the strongest challenge has been with anger because when the anger comes, it comes so fast. And if it if it's not caught before it, goes outward then I'm already wanting to flip a table or slam a door or rush out and drive off you know erratically whatever the 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 result is of that anger it's going to look very you know kind of aggressive and and destructive so <clears throat> for me that's been the hardest thing to catch when that feeling comes to, I heard a story once, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh was giving a talk, and I guess it was up in San Francisco, and this one um, homosexual uh, guy, a gay man, he basically had gone to the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama had made a comment, and um, he was upset. He felt that that comment was somewhat judgmental towards homosexuality. So, he brought it to Thich Nhat Hanh and you know, he said, how could, Thich Nhat Hanh, how could uh, the Dalai Lama say this, basically saying that homosexuals can't, you know, the equivalent of like saying they can't go to heaven or something. <laughs> I doubt the Dalai Lama put it that way, but I don't know the exact quote. But Thich Nhat Hanh sat there, uh, my friend was in the audience, so he said it was like five minutes solid of silence before he spoke. And then he said the reason... I was so quiet is that I felt the seed of anger rising in me hmm. and I didn't want to speak from that anger 
So it took me that attention to kind of transfer that anger back into the stream of peace. And then he's, what he ended up saying was, every human being is like a flower in the garden. There's pink flowers, green flowers, red flowers, and they're all beautiful exactly as they are. And that was it. <laughs> I heard a story about a samurai where the samurai was obligated, duty-bound, to go and avenge the death of, or to avenge his overlord. His overlord had been offended or killed or something by this other guy. And so he went and found the guy, and he had him in a corner, and he was about to chop him with his samurai sword when the guy spat in his face. And at that, the samurai just put his sword away and walked away. And he explained later the reason he did that was that he became angry when the guy spat in his face, and he wasn't going to, you know, he couldn't do his samurai duty in a state of anger. So similar story kind of. I like that, yeah. Yeah. That's been a reoccurring theme for me mm -hmm. uh, as far as how to how to how to deal with the anger when it when it shows up and how suddenly it can show up. Yeah. Um, and met, since I've met met Natalia I've had to basically step up my game as far as my behavior mm -hmm. I've been I've been getting away with not keeping that anger in check and I was kind of had been maybe rationalizing or justifying that anger's anger what's the problem with it you know it's just another thing why is everybody afraid of it but it started to get to a point for me where I felt like I don't want to express anger at anyone right. and that I have to hold myself to that and actually not do it. So I'd say especially like in the last six months, there's been this process of feeling it rise and becoming very aware that it's here and that it has nothing to do with anyone else. You know, that it, it may seem like it came out of the situation where somebody else mistreated you or, you know, you supposedly felt dishonored <laughs> or disrespected. But to instantly try to shut down the reaction and let the inquiry fully take over and then detonate within. It's like a little explosion can go off inside. And... For me, I mean, I think at the same time of having a lot of, like, a short fuse in this life, it also goes very quickly. Mm. You know, I've, it's never lingered for a long time. There's not, like, a holding of a grudge or a staying in this anger for, you know, more than 20 minutes, you know, an hour or something like that, and then it's just forgotten. It's like, okay, on to whatever else is going on. Yeah. There's a couple of, couple of interesting observations here. That you've read the Gita a lot, so you know that whole series about Arjuna asking Krishna what what causes a man to sort of commit sin as if involuntarily, and then the, he Krishna says it is desire, it is anger, all-consuming and most terrible. Know that to be the enemy here on earth, and um, and the explanation is that it's not that there's anything wrong with desire, but when desire is thwarted then anger can flare up. And so there's a couple of elements there. One is that 
you know, desire it be appropriate because there might be a good reason for it to be thwarted. <laughs> and, and another is resting in a state of contentment so that one's fulfillment is not contingent upon uh, this or that or the other desire actually coming to fruition, but that the fulfillment is sort of um, in, inherent in your nature. And then, then there's, you know, because often you feel when you feel anger, there's a s sense of frustration. It's like I've been blocked. I've been, you know, I've been stymied in some way. There's that kind of feeling. But, you know, if there's a kind of a sufficient degree of inner freedom based, founded in contentment, then there's not much impetus for that, you know? Yeah. I mean, there there's a use... I think for anger, it, it's not like it's. It, it can be the enemy, as you just said. Yeah. Um, but it can be an effective um, kind of energy if you apply it. You know, you can get a lot done by cleaning up, doing laundry, doing the dishes, <laughs> taking out the trash. Yeah. Not that I do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Because my wife was like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, right." Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, if you put it to use, you know, one of the things that Ramana said is, "Is get angry at the anger." Hmm, that's nice. And you know, it, it, some of the the different stories of devotees, you know, that were living at Ramana Ashram when he was alive, and sometimes it would seem like he was laughing at 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 people that were flaring their egos like mm -hmm. it was kind of like he and the other devotees would be getting a good chuckle out of it yeah <laughs> because it's the ego rearing its its head and it thinks it has you know all of this power and makes these threats and accusations and it's kind of a joke it's it's kind of sad but you know he he was telling this person get angry at the anger hmm. and that stuck with me uh, you know, it's it's kind of like just an instant, you know, mechanism to realize uh, if you're going to take it out on other people, you know, it's never going to actually go anywhere. Yeah. Now, sometimes, you know, you, you, you just react, you go through your, your moment, and it's gone. Like, let's say you're driving, you know, and somebody cuts you off, you just... Ah, you know, up yours, whatever you react, <laughs> and you, you don't hang on to it. It doesn't have to become an escalation of of force, you know, where you're pulling out guns and shooting at each other on the freeway. Mm -hmm. But um, these other things, where where it comes up very strongly and very personally, like I've been personally offended, these are the best opportunities to to find out where you're you're actually believing that who you are is other than just pure awareness. Good point, yeah. It's like you're taking yourself very seriously if you get in, into a real tizzy over s some guy cutting you off on the freeway, you know. It's like, and also that it would imply that you're really not, I mean, there's a natural flow to things. Even if, even if nature's out of balance, things are flowing naturally, and there's a sort of an artful Taoist kind of way of, of you know, flowing through life and and not crashing against things unnecessarily so you know if, if a person is kind of angry at every little thing that doesn't go their way it, it to me it kind of implies that they haven't learned that art you know? yeah it's an immaturity mm -hmm. 
your your example of Ramana saying get angry at the anger kind of reminds me of the way firefighters in the forest create a backfire to kind of you know consume the brush that the the main fire is is going to go after and that way they they stop the fire. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. like that. Yeah. That's per- that's a perfect metaphor. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's 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 it takes um you know, it takes a lot of effort and then usually the effort pays off to effortlessness and then you can you can go beyond both. Yeah. You, know, you can go beyond effort and effortlessness. But it depends on on the situation and you know who you're speaking to that you would say you know apply a lot of effort apply a lot of discipline or give up effort and rest it depends on on the ripeness of the listener of, yeah. of how that would be understood and be effective because to me all of these things in the end are about effectiveness usefulness you know, if I have a theoretical knowledge of the Gita or of self-realization, that's only going to get me so far. You know, I can I can hold a conversation, I can write you know really cleverly about it, I can get into great you know discussions, and in my mind, I'm the next Adi Shankara, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> debating yeah. with with people. But effectively and practically. I'm only going to go so far with any of that. And so, you know, what I've found is most of the stuff that I've kind of had as knowledge is is falling away because it's become its own identity that no longer is relevant. Yeah. Uh, or or would you would you say that the experience that that knowledge referred to is blossoming to an extent that the knowledge is not so important as it was it's more like the i mean it's it's what the not it's like a cookbook isn't very relevant once you start eating the meal you know uh you know a cookbook explains how the meal was made but it's really the meal that it's all that is the significant thing yeah yeah um yeah it's not to not to discredit knowledge you know or even having that ability to study and and deeply understand, you know, mentally these teachings. Um, I don't know, you know, I because of that hot-temperedness, I've had certain situations come up, you know, just a, I think it was about a year ago or so, maybe eight months, nine months ago, I was in the coffee shop, and there was this guy, Charles, that I had never met, but, you know, a friend of mine had told me about him, and he was sitting with this other friend of mine and he was he was kind of wanting to rewrite I am that and correct the spelling and uh-huh. and um, maybe make a commentary of where the focus should be for the seeker and I, I pretty much laid into him like <laughs> totally blasted him in a way that was extremely intense uh-huh. where he got up and left and ended up saying anybody that's friends with me he's not friends with <laughs> you know, he was he was personally offended. I didn't particularly enjoy the experience of of being in that role. You know, I don't necessarily look for that, but it does happen. And I don't know really, you know, what the effect of it was, but 
it came out very, very, very much like calling him out and being like, enough, you know, enough with this spiritual narcissism. The I am that is fine. It works. <laughs> Leave it alone. Find out who you are. Mm. And, yeah. Well, looking back at that, do you feel like that was the most appropriate way to interact with him, or do you feel like you could have done it in a more dispassionate way? And you yeah, know? I don't, I don't care. I don't have, I don't have any, any feeling of like looking over the life and correcting it. It's like a poem, and I care when the anger comes. Like I said, and if it's gonna if it's gonna be used in a harmful way, then I want to remove myself and be alone. Yeah. I don't want to just you know attack someone or break up furniture because nothing comes out of it, and then it's you're just fixing a table. Sure, or but can't, can't we kind of um, ponder a bit on something we've done that you know may have been um, you know. Uh, small-minded or short-sighted or, or inappropriate. We do, we and do. Learn, learn a lesson from it thereby. What, what, I, what I'm suggesting is in that very moment that you start that pondering, mm -hmm. are you again, are you coming from awareness or from being a person? <clears throat> if you're a person named Rick and you have a, a life in linear time that you're monitoring, that you're the evaluator of, that you're the narrator of, and that you as that voice in your head decides that was not appropriate, that was appropriate. Where is that coming from? What gives you that um, sense of yourself? Because as soon as you ask, who am I, that'll all go. You won't have that trail. You'll be back in the presence of pure awareness without any story. So I don't, I'm not looking at it, it was inappropriate or appropriate. It was mysterious. I don't know. I know that it, it caused him to not want to speak to me. Yeah. That's all that the effect of it was. But I can't really know if it was right or wrong and if, if I should not act that way. Because I don't have a sense that that really mattered, that, that, this, that this interaction with him happened. It do, I do have a sense that if I start reacting in anger to my wife or to my kids, that that matters. That has more of a value, like a currency of value to me, that it's not it's not that it's not appropriate or that it's not right. It just doesn't feel true. It feels like an immaturity. But with him in the coffee shop, there's no there's no reverb of feeling an immaturity. It's more of a feeling of that's what came through, that's what the mirror that he was looking in, and I don't know. I don't know why. Well, you don't have to live with him as you do with your wife and kids. <laughs> you know, you may never see him again. Um, which is not to say there wasn't an influence, but I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't mean to be getting on your, I'm not trying to get on your case here. I'm just saying the general principle, um, like, well, here's, here's the general principle. I mean, you just said, well, if you're kind of narrowed down into looking at it as Rick or as Raphael or whatever, uh, then, then maybe you're not totally settled in presence. And so you're kind of in a more individuated, uh, condition and uh, you're not seeing the whole picture or something. But um, what I would contend, and this if often comes up in interviews, is that you know we are all those things simultaneously. There are many, uh, 
you know, life is paradoxical if you look at it in its entirety because there are sort of, even in, in the realm of physics, there are laws at one level which are completely irrelevant at another level, and, uh, and ultimately there are no levels. But it, it, when you focus in on, on one or, or another level, then you see that there are different, uh, you know, nature functions differently on, on those levels. So, yeah, yeah. you know, as human I've, beings... I've heard, you, I've heard you say that. Yeah, that yeah. Kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's, to me, that's not really something I would argue or dispute because that's kind of like just you're speaking conventionally about nature and science. Yeah. So, but, I, but I would say, I would say it's more relevant to find out how significant that model is to your actual everyday life mm-hmm. and then to find if you're interested, like if a person's actually interested in what we're calling liberation or realization. If so, if the focus is self-realization, everything's spontaneous at that point. You're not you're not living your life based on a model that you've constructed or understood. You're you're free of that. Right. That may come back as a way to dialogue, but if the emphasis is always on the explanation of how things are, I've found I miss I miss what's actually happening. Sure, I agree with that. And a fundamental point here, which you brought up a little while ago, is that um, what's really important is that whatever you are living in terms of spirituality, you are actually living it and experientially. You know, in your yeah. in your blood and bones, you're not just sort of hanging on to some exactly. con- concepts you read in a book or something. Like exactly. That. That, that's why I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. That's why I'm not I'm not you know trying to present an image of, you know, attaining anything. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not a teacher. I'm not somebody that, you know, has a following. I'm not pushing anything because I, I, I just see that as, as an identity that now you have to serve. You know, to me, I'm, I'm happier when I don't have any plans. Of course, you make plans. You do have to do things, you know. You keep, you keep fuel in your car and you change the oil and you feed the, the body and you go earn money to provide for kids and all that is happening so I'm not saying you know to just sit sit under the tree and go into a trance and never get up but it's just not relevant to me to have an identity about where life is going and some mission to me that seems to all fall whether you it may go on it may continue quite you know like your show may continue effortlessly in terms of people call you somebody refers you the work is happening through your hands the activities are happening but it's not resting on rick archer's need you know to be recognized or need to reap anything from it life is just kind of using you as an instrument to engage in this way yeah, I have that sense. And as Rick Archer, I have the sense that I really enjoy this, you know. And that's I don't pretend that I don't. <laughs> you know, it's like uh I'm not I'm not completely like impersonal and dispassionate about it. This is something I enjoy doing. I also enjoy cross-country skiing and, you know, riding my bicycle and and various other activities that are kind of pertinent to to the, to my makeup, you know, to and we all have our dharmas. And and I wouldn't necessarily conclude that somebody who's sitting up on a dais in front of 300 people is um, 
locked into some small self-centered egotistical uh, self-concept some may some of them very well maybe and 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 some of them who are perhaps not you know mature enough to really take on such a role it might really bloat their egos but i think uh, a good a good many of the more genuine ones or all the all the more genuine ones can can function in that kind of capacity and yet remain in a very simple innocent a humble kind of uh, condition that, it, that knowing and experiencing that it's not about them it's more about the the knowledge that's being kind of channeled yeah, through for them. sure yeah, yeah yeah for sure some people just end up in that in that role and they're not necessarily trying to you know fulfill an image self image right yeah they're good at it you know saying, I mean, Eckhart Tolle yeah. people like that they're just good at it you know and so it kind of just yeah. snowballs in their in, in their life yeah it, it, there's a saying too that you know there there aren't any false gurus there's only false devotees hmm. I just came across that I thought it was interesting what do you uh, think that means well, basically, if if what you want, you know, not you, Rick, but you, anyone, it is to actually be free of your own sense of division or duality within yourself as there's a me and there's a God, and I want this God, can you provide it? Can you give it to me? Mm-hmm. Which is basic duality. If what you want is to actually realize that God is doing everything, mm-hmm. that God is the one living, that God is the one, or the self is the one wanting to know itself directly, not some secondary agent called a me, right. you know, wanting to actually, I want enlightenment now. Now I want to be enlightened, which, again, it's just like somebody saying, I want to be a race car driver. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a desire. Right. That implies that that you think you're already a separate person that's going somewhere. So if that's what's burning in someone, you know, that drives them to go to India to go looking for a guru, then there's nothing you're gonna, you know, say or do that's gonna stop them from going straight to whatever they can find. Now they may find what somebody else says is a false guru that they themselves maybe five years later say is a false guru. But that particular guru represented what they needed to find out about themselves, Mm -hmm. not about the teacher, because they're left with themselves. They have to be free of whatever confusion is in their awareness. They have to do it. So in that sense, if, if the devotee or the disciple or the seeker doesn't actually want to wake up they're going to play out of this game for a while and it's all fine it's all it's it's not like anything's being harmed ultimately speaking because we're talking about eternity <laughs> yeah no, that's a very very good explanation i really love I, I love what you just said and i i totally concur and you know i can think of a number of gurus that in my opinion I wouldn't wouldn't want to hang out with them, or wouldn't want to have hung out with them. Some of them are deceased, uh, but I've met people who did hang out with them, with whom 
I'm very impressed. You know, like, whoa, these people have really gained some spiritual maturity. And, and in, in, in many cases, some of those people kind of look back at, at that as having been a phase that they wouldn't want redo at their present level of maturity. You know, like they can see the flaws that their teacher had now from in retrospect, from, from a distance. But it was just the perfect thing for them at the time, you know, and they acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's... I've gotten to many points where I was very absolutist, very extremist, very intensely dismissive of the relative of the world appearance, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, on one level, that's absolutely true, you know, that it all goes away in deep sleep. You're not aware of your form. Yeah. You're not aware of the trees. You're not aware of any world. You're just resting in beingness. And that's very true. There's no, you can say there is no world. But once you become adamant about that as a reference point and take it on as a belief, you've already gotten into some confusion. Yeah. You know, because the fact of it is, if it's seen and understood, it doesn't mean that you have to convince anyone of that, especially yourself. You don't have to convince yourself. So I've fallen into that convincing when I'm trying to convince the one I'm speaking to, I'm trying to convince myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm in that basic dualistic confusion. And then and you kind of wake up out of that, and, I, and it's like, well, that's a house of mirrors. That's a very good point. I, I think know, fundamentalists are, yeah, fundamentalists are always trying to convince someone of the thing that, of, that they have a doubt about. <laughs> You know? Yeah. So when that when you see that, it's it's like either you keep on denying that, or you kind of stay with that seeing and 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 be honest about it and let it let it be effective. I, I don't I don't want to walk around arguing about the nature of the world. It, you know, it's this, it's that. The ego doesn't exist. It does. Like that gets pretty tiring. Mm. <laughs> it's much easier to say. To, to to use the certs paradox analogy, they're both are true, you know. It's this and it's this, and maybe ultimately it's this, and 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 not the more superficial consideration. But on a, in its own way, the superficial consideration has validity. Yeah. You know, I mean, so we can say, fine. There's no universe. It's all absolute. Everything is unmanifest. Nothing ever happened. All of that's absolutely true. And at the same time. The opposite is true. There is a universe. There are laws of nature. There's gravity. There's photosynthesis. There's your body. There are cells. There's your family. You know, all this stuff. And you can, you can take that, boil it right back down again and say there's nothing. But, you know, I, as I understand it, real spiritual wisdom incorporates the whole gamut and, and harmonizes all these paradoxes within itself. Yeah, I, I like that. It's, it's, it's got to have a, for me, what am I looking at is peace. Am I at peace in the midst of all of this? Yeah. Or am I really actually feeling completely like I'm, um, you know, going through something that's hell, you know, that, that, that's not enjoyable, that, that doesn't have a sense of grace to it, or however you want to put it, you know, however we use um, different ways of describing it. But in the end, I can get, you know, argumentative as quick as I can get angry. And I can then, again, rationalize, you know, the use of usefulness of it. 
but more and more I feel the, the less stimulation you give the kind of speculative mind or the the uh, um, the, the mind that wants to hold the knowledge because a lot of times it's like somebody's a scripture holder and they're just this person's not realized that person's not realized that one can't be because they do this right it's it's an interesting phenomenon that that I've found the best um, way to be effective is to silence that mm-hmm. you know and if that means not interacting with that person then that's that's probably the best approach because mm-hmm. you, you want to, we're wanting to silence that within ourselves so that we can actually be clear, actually be present, and be an instrument that really is used in a pure way without all this this self-deceit or this egoism sneaking back into it. Also, if we take a, a martial arts metaphor, Aikido, for instance, you know, rather than opposing the opponent and, and trying to fight, you know, rigidity with rigidity, if you, you, you somehow just do it in such a way that his own energy yeah. <laughs> if his own energy flips him and, and the what the metaphor relates to is that you know in a way whatever anybody says they're right because they've got a piece of the puzzle you know it's not necessarily the whole puzzle but if you just keep that and if you have the whole kind of keep the whole puzzle in your awareness you realize okay that piece is valid it may totally conflict with this piece over here but it's it's valid in its own yeah. right it's just not the whole picture because everyone's describing different parts of the elephant exactly <laughs> Yeah, and and, and, and being God. very convinced that their part is the elephant, you know, that's that's yeah. all there is to it. <laughs> I was thinking of Jackie Chan in, in the the drunken where he does the drunken technique of fighting. I, did, I didn't see that one. No, what is he? Because <laughs> it does it does it makes the other person kind of take themselves out of the equation uh-huh. instead of <laughs> fighting the person. You are kind of just maneuvering where they're fighting with themselves. Yeah. I noticed in this piece that I read on the internet the other day that you wrote recently that um, you've you've gone and interviewed a lot of people, you know, Francis Lucille and various other people, and then listened to a lot of people and checked them out and everything. And you, you've had this tendency of initially kind of thinking, eh, this person's a phony, or I'm I don't like this this guy has yeah. too opulent a, a house or or some such thing. But then after a little time, you kind of mellow out and think, well, that's okay too, you know. And and actually, he's saying he, he he's got some wisdom here. Yeah, it's 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 a strong tendency for me to be kind of a um, judgmental towards what we would call spiritual materialism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very strong hook that you know I apply it to my my own life, and that's fine. I don't do things that don't feel authentic to me, but projecting it outward onto what's happening in others' lives keeps showing up to me as not not relevant. Uh, I wouldn't live in, in such a house like Francis Lucille lived in, but mm. that's me. That's my sensibility. He was raised in, you know, France and was was wealthy and grew up that way, and that's just kind of maybe his natural inclination to have a house with nice architecture and, and beautiful skylights, and that's what he's expressing. And he may I not have he may not have bought that house with money he earned as a spiritual teacher. He may have inherited it. Yeah, or, he had you know, it going whatever. into it too. Yeah, yeah. And and but the main point is, you know, again, it's like a, a stopping point with the critical mind and and saying and applying self inquiry. You realize that 
every human being is being played by this one absolute essence. Yep. It can't be any other way. So it can't be, who am I actually blaming for living in that house? Is it the man, Francis Lucille, or is it the absolute itself? Yeah. And if, if I think it's off and it doesn't know what it's doing, who am I? Then you've really got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say the absolute wants to experience itself as Francis Lucille living in a nice house. You know, and over here it wants to experience it itself as, as you know, Joe Schmo living in a jail cell. So there's, you know, all the variety. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I was preparing um, for interviewing Anita Murjani this weekend, and she had to postpone again. She's in, very much in demand. Uh, so I, I appreciate your having come on the spur of the moment. But um, one interesting point I was going to... Anita is this woman who had... I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she had this near-death experience. She was within hours of dying from severe cancer. She had lemon-sized tumors all over her body, and she was in a coma, and she was checking out. And then she had this profound near-death experience in which she realized that her true nature was this vast, you know, bl profound, wise condition. That, and she realized that's everyone's true nature and, and that we're all kind of locked into smallness by the, the density of the world or something. And then she came back from that and her cancer healed up really quickly and, and she's, she's fine now. But it's interesting to consider, uh, you know, what, uh, what our... We, we always talk about our true nature, presence, silence or whatever... Um, how deep can that go? You know, um, how clear can it be? And if it were utterly deep and utterly clear, how would it compare with what we accept now as a state of presence or silence? And if you've listened to some of my interviews, you know this is also a theme that I kind of bring up, and I happen to be of the opinion that um, spiritual unfoldment is an ongoing process. And the, and when people say I'm awake. I have arrived. I'm done. Uh, I'm I'm always kind of suspicious of that, and I, I feel yeah, that, yeah. I feel that fine. <laughs> it's a stage, and it may be very gratifying. It might seem like you're done because this stage is so gratifying, but there's no telling how how. Well, what know. would it what would it mean to be done? Good question. I mean, I I honestly don't know because <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing. You know, the birds are chirping. The sun is coming up. Rain is falling. What does it mean for a human being to be done? And yeah. basically, when you wake up, that's where you your work actually begins. I would tend you to know? agree with that. Yeah. Now, the the fundamental understanding when we're talking about it on the understanding level that I would stress is that sense of being the individual doer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If if that's not understood, that it's not even logically possible because of everything being one thing, one totality of existence operating mm -hmm. through everything and everyone, that there's any room there for a separate entity to also be like a co-creator of anything, to me is not logical if you just take it on the pure mental level of understanding, which again, I said earlier, I don't want to just dwell there. <clears throat> Continue. I'm just turning off the phone bell. Yep. So the awakening gives you a taste, like a direct meal, as you said earlier, instead of the menu, of that totality of awareness and the depth. Yeah. And then life kind of comes back 
and actions start happening again. You can talk about why. You know, you can talk about karma, you can talk about destiny, all that. You can go into that intellectually, but that's not relevant either. What you can, what you're left with is there's an awakening, there's a sense of that vast presence, and then there's this kind of return to the normal activities of whatever your life is. Or there might be a total change. You may no longer work at that factory. You yeah. may no longer be with that relationship. You may move instantly. Everything might start popping and popping as far as on the manifest level of your life and how it looks. But the idea that you then have that you're done, who's holding it? Right. Who is saying it and to who? And what does it mean? Yeah. That's well, the it... part that I, that I agree with you where it's like it's not, it's not even that interesting as a statement. Yeah. No, I would I tend to agree with all that. And in my experience, uh, both myself, my own and uh, observationally, um, you know, you can have all sorts of profound spiritual awakenings, but then it's a matter of integrating that into uh, into life and, um, you know, learning to function in, in, a, in a more awake state. And as you said, you might change jobs, you might change relationships. There can be all kinds of reshuffling that necessarily takes place because that kind of more vast awareness no longer kind of fits within the structures of your life as they existed. And, you know, you need to kind of build a bigger house or whatever, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking. Um, I don't know if that's an adequate response to what you just said. I was a little distracted by the phone just ringing. Yeah, yeah. But, no problem. Yeah. It but, is, um, I'm feeling like I'd, I'd like to maybe wrap up in the next five minutes if okay. that's possible. Yeah, sure. We can do that. I'm just batting around ideas with you. I had a feeling that this would be the nature of this interview, that we just kind of take certain concepts and knock them back and forth and, and you know, give people an opportunity to think about the things that we're thinking about. Um, so this might be a good stopping point then since you've said that. Is there anything else on your mind that um, you, you know, well, feel? Well, I, I, I recently... Natalia and I made a documentary called Living Non-Duality here. In I listened to that. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it's um, it's free. It's on Vimeo. It's on my website, which mm -hmm. is a nonprofit that we're developing, and just it's kind of like growing organically this this nonprofit idea and just seeing where it goes. But mm -hmm. the um, the video doesn't have a lot of Robert Wolf in it but it's actually all inspired and kind of surrounding him. And he's here in OI, and he's a very clear non-dual teacher. Right. You know, in that sense. And I met him, and all these different things started happening, and the film happened, and, you know, it's, I'd love it for people to see it. I feel there's a lot of usefulness there that people can dialogue about to kind of look back at their own minds as a reflection of where they're getting hooked into the conceptual. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's the only thing I would want to bring people's attention to that, that we just recently did. Yeah, good. Well, I'll link to that from my website. Um, so I would say if, if I had a concluding point I wanted to make, it would be to say to people in general, you know, don't rest on your laurels, you know. Don't be in a hurry to, to kind of conclude that I mean, it's one thing to say I've given up seeking, and to that, to me, that means 
you've given up or you've gone beyond the sort of desperate, annoying, unfulfilled, gotta get it or I'll die feeling that new new spiritual aspirants often get, you know, that really kind of drives them yeah. cra- crazy for an, a, a, a period of time. But it's 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 another thing to continue. I mean, one can get to a point, and most people do after a while, that they that that relaxes and they don't feel this sort of desperation. But the discovery never stops. You know, seeking and discovery are different things. You may stop seeking in, in that sort of empty kind of unfulfilled way, but you never stop discovering. There's always more to unfold, more to realize, more subtlety, more depth, more refinement. You know. Yeah. So yeah. I like that. Can I ask what one thing? What book are you talking about? To my wife. Oh, oh my wife wanted to mention I have a poetry book, but it, it, it's. Is it on we your website, have, or is there a link to it, or is, uh, is it on Amazon it. or anything? We don't have it. Like I had published a hundred copies of it, and uh-huh. others have been given out. So I'll post something on the website if that if we end up publishing more. Okay, good. But there's poems that that are written there every maybe once a week twice a week whenever I kind of wake up in the middle of the night and <laughs> feel a poem happening but um, that's great well I appreciate um, having this opportunity Rick yeah thank you and, and thanks again for your flexibility and, and doing this on the spur of the moment oh you bet yeah so let me make it just a concluding remark very quickly uh, I've been speaking with Raphael Stoneman I'll link to his website uh, you can check that out look at his documentary I found it quite interesting um, and you know he he has a blog there that he you know writes various things and um, you know there's ways of getting in touch with you there I presume if a person wants to do that um, this is uh, an ongoing series of interviews in case this is the first one you may have listened to I do a new one each week and if you would like to be notified when each new one is posted, then you can either subscribe to the YouTube channel, and YouTube will notify you, or you can sign up on my website, batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, for an email notification that you'll get once a week. And there's also a discussion group there that gets quite lively. It's very often the same voices, so it's nice to announce this and let new people come in and and interact. But sometimes we end up with hundreds of of posts on even one interview um, going uh, into depth about some of the things that were discussed. So if that appeals to you, uh, come there, do that. Uh, I also am applying for 501c3 status. Uh, finally got the application sent in. It hasn't uh, been approved yet, but the accountant says it'll be a slam dunk. So um, there's a donate button on my site, and um, sh- people should be able to get a tax write-off for, for making donations. Thank you, everybody. for li- Oh, one more thing. There's an audio podcast. So if you like to just listen to things on your iPod instead of having to sit in front of your computer, you can subscribe to that. So thanks again, Raphael. Thank you, everybody, for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. All right. Thank you, Rick.